Hello, beautiful people. My play Tinkerbell is currently running at Adventure Theater MTC. Directed by Nick Olcott and starring Michelle Polera in the title role, this multicolored tale tells the familiar story from Tinkerbell's point of view, including her meeting of Peter Pan and Triumph at the Battle for Neverland. Pirates, puppets, fairies, fighting, and more than a few goof-em-ups. Go to adventuretheater-mtc.org for tickets and performance information. Tinkerbell, now playing at Adventure Theater MTC. Welcome to the Original Cast, a podcast about original cast albums and the people who love them. I'm Patrick Flynn. I've got another Tinkerbell-related flashback for you this week. This time I'm going all the way back to August 2016 and the Adventure Theater MTC's artistic director, Michael J. Bobbitt, talking about Once on this Island. So enjoy the flashback and don't forget to come see Tinkerbell now playing at Adventure Theater MTC. Go to adventuretheater-mtc.org for tickets and performance information. Whenever my world falls apart... I never lose hope or lose heart. Whatever the form of the storm that may brew, not with you to lean on, darlings, you. Hello and welcome to The Original Cast, a podcast about original cast albums and the people who love them. I'm Patrick Flynn, playwright, filmmaker, and professor of communications at American University. And each episode, we invite someone from the theater who you'd see on stage, backstage, or in the house to discuss an original cast album they love. And today, we're joined by the artistic director of Adventure Theater MTC, Michael J. Bobbitt. Hey, everyone. How hey, you Michael. Doing? How you doing? I'm very good. I, I didn't want to forget the J. The J, yes. It Gotta stands keep... for James. And you chose a cast album. Well, tell the people tell the people what you chose. Once on this island. We dance to the On this island, yeah, one of my favorites with Lashans. Lashans, yes, yes, I'm yes, saying that correctly. Yes. Flaherty and Aaron's, and um, this was a show I didn't know. Um, oh, really? No, I had heard of it. Uh, I think I think it came out in '90, and it was one that was in the air, but I never encountered it. So it was exciting to hear it for the the first time. How did it enter your life? I think the first time I saw it was the touring production at the Kennedy Center. I met actually my friend Darius Dehouse, who is currently in Shuffle Along on Broadway. Just saw him a week and a half ago. Um, I don't know why I bought tickets. I don't know why I went to see it. I was just there. And from the beginning to the end, I was pretty mesmerized Hmm. by it. And uh, I got the cast album and listened to it and learned every word. And when I went to theater school, um, shortly after that, I would... One of the songs was in my sort of book of songs, and I used to sing the duet with a friend of mine in theater school, and it was a dream role of mine. I had a chance to audition a couple of times and uh, came back to it when I choreographed a production at Roundhouse Theater in the 2000s. I can't remember. When. Okay. But, yeah, but I, I really love it. It's oh, a, wow. It's a great it's a great concept musical with great tunes by Aaron's and Flaherty and great characters and... A really great love story, and in my in many in in my mind, it has all the makings of a great musical. Oh, what do you mean by that? Well, I have a belief that um, you know musicals have to have certain elements that make them worthy of being musicalized. Okay. I sort of believe that the best musicals are musicals that have music as a plot point. And or when you think about the subject matter of the music, musical, or the wannabe musical, you can hear music. You can hear songs. Like if you think about cowboys, you can hear cowboy okay. kind of music. If you think about the Caribbean, you can hear sounds. Okay. Um, and then I th- also think it needs to have, every musical has to have a love story and some kind of fantasy element. And those are the things I think make the best hmm. musicals. And oftentimes in a musical theater world, we create musicals out of things that probably shouldn't be musicalized. So now I'm now I'm obviously my instinct is to be a contrarian, but I'm having <laughs> the funny thing is almost all the musicals all I'm thinking of are shows that fit your <laughs> your uh, your requirements. the The most recent one I think I've heard that I, I I think might not is Bridges of Madison County, the Jason Robert Brown. Musical a love of, last, story. of two years ago. Yeah. There's a love story that it's the the magic that I'm I'm kind of 
Oh, I don't need no or fantasy. Or you just mean fantasy? I'm fantasy, sorry, fantasy. Meaning that the characters oh, have that's to true. dream okay. and want something bigger than they. I see. Okay. They have. All right. Yeah, and typically that fantasy comes from a love story. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, yeah. that show that shows a lot to do with fantasy, actually. Okay. All right. I'm gonna stop being contrarian in my head and just and accept. <laughs> accept no, I, your, I won't give you examples on 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 the record, but there's no. examples of musicals that I think just should not be made to, into musicals. Well, it is certainly true that. I think there's a best way. There are certain uh, – every story has a best way to tell it. Mm-hmm. So there's some – you know, you make a book into a film and everybody always says the book is better. And whether that's true or not, I think what they're actually saying is the story was better told as a novel. Right. But there are some novels that – the films, I should say, that the novel – that make the novel better in, in a lot of ways. That Where the novel is, is just – it can be a little bit of a slog and the, and the, and the film – clarifies other things. And the same is true with plays and musicals and all these things. There's an apex way to tell the story. And right. this modern era of adaption and then I love this cycle the movies like Hairspray get into where it's film, musical, musical version of the film. Right, film version of the musical, I should right, say. Yeah. Right, right. right. <laughs> and it's just we're just gonna keep doing that. And now live on TV this yeah. December. And that and that story already has a has music as a plot point. Yeah. So it that's does. why it works so well as a musical. Um, there's a, a title that has come across my desk recently that seems like it would it's about an alien okay. I'll just tell you it's about an alien and the al- it's a movie about an alien and the alien in the movie speaks words but in alien language okay and so it, you don't want to hear that character singing because it would sound really bad. Mm-hmm. And so, but the approach to me has been, can we make this into a musical? And while, yeah, sure you can, but is it going to be a good musical? Right. That's the question. But anyway, uh-huh. the shows I really am drawn to are those ones where I think those three elements are always present. Okay. Well, they're certainly present in Once on this Island. Very I think it's, it's very, I mean, even the, the structure of it being a show within a show, mm-hmm. it lends itself to that kind of theatricality. So you saw, you saw the Road Company said, or was it Kennedy Road Center? Company, okay, yeah, yeah. So did they have the 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 first question I have is did they have the gods being played by the storytellers? Was yep. that the way they did the structure? Yep. Okay, yeah. Because um, I I've not been familiar with this trying to read the synopsis because you don't really get a sense of the story from a full sense of the story I should say from the CD actually until the end. I mean the last song why we tell the story does a nice job of kind of pulling it all back pulling together. it all back together again. Um, but I had to read the synopsis to sort of get the details of who was singing and why and, and when. And I liked that idea of there being sort of these, I guess, two or three characters who come out of nowhere. But then there's the storytellers, the gods, the little girl they're telling the story to. Right. And then um, the main characters played uh, the um, Timon. Is that? Timon, yeah. Timon, Timon yeah. Timon, yeah. <clears throat> and, um, and her love interest and... and, and uh, all those characters. Right. And the other thing I think about that's great about this story, um, and it's funny because um, you and I have talked about playwriting a lot, and uh, my playwriting teacher did not like narrative text. Mm. He did not like characters stepping forward and telling you what's going to happen. It wanted – that my playwriting teacher wanted to see all the action happening. Mm-hmm. On stage, and so, but so this one uses narrative tech. It, people yeah. step forward, they tell you what's going to happen, and then they play characters in the play, and then do it again. Um, and it and it it's very present in musical theater. Ragtime does it. Um, Almost every musical shuffle does it. along. There's narrative yeah. text. That Hamilton happens. does it. Yeah, Fun Hamilton, Home does yeah. it. It's a very yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a pretty. But I think Once in This Island does it really, really well. Mm-hmm. Really, really well. Well, it's it's necessary. It felt necessary to me because on the surface. This is a pretty depressing story in, in, its, in its initial conclusion. It's tragic. It's tragic, yes. I should say. Yes, yes. it's tragic. Yeah. That, is, that is probably a better way to say it. But, you know, it, it, it does not, spoiler alert, end well for our young lovers initially. Right. But then you have that moment, you say, of the, of the, the, the gods or the narrators stepping forward and telling us they have to move it forward. They've got to tell us why this is actually a good story and why we tell the story. And they tell you everything that happened after it, and you go, oh, this is a hopeful story kind of at the end of yeah, the day. Yeah, and I thought a really great way to end the play, too, with uh, you got to move these things forward. You mm-hmm. gotta, love and evil will always battle, and it, it, it should not prevent you from still pursuing love. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, it's a, I mean, tragedy, and there is no tragedy without hope, of course, as, as, as we know. As and we know. <laughs> <laughs> as we know. So it is a, yeah, but it's a, it's a, it's a fun, so what is your, you, you, when you saw the production at Kennedy Center, um, 
and you were immediately spellbound by it, you say, what was the thing that most grabbed your attention? Well, the the fantastic music and certainly the wonderful performers they had, um, but I really loved the theatricality of the staging. Graciela Daniela, I think, directed and choreographed it, um, and it was fairly simple. It was basically a empty set, and it was just acting and great in a few great props and a few great costumes. Which the which theater was it in? At the uh, I can't remember. I was, was it was one of the big ones, though? It wasn't like a um, black one of the boxes? Um, okay. It may have been like the terrorist, but I but sure. I, yeah, it's been so okay. long ago. But um, but but I think it, it was the Broadway tour. Right. I mean, it did open at a at a proscenium right. house, obviously. Yeah. Right. And so and and I and it's interesting that that um, that that's all coming back now because I think the success of the recent revival of the color purple is very mm-hmm. much the same. Like there's no set. Basically, mm-hmm. I remember walking to the color purple, going, "This is it. This sort of looks like regional theater. I, I mm-hmm. bet you something's going to fly up or something's going to come up from the ground, and nothing happens mm-hmm. on the set. It's just great acting, incredible performers, and and singing these great songs. And 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 that's maybe all you need for theater. And I think in the in the day and age of of really overproduced shows and and one-upmanship, maybe yeah. going back to the simplicity of it is what we want. But once this island had that, and it had it with great performers and a few props and great staging and mm-hmm. good storytelling. There is that problem of if you're going to charge two hundred bucks a ticket, people want to see it. They want to see where their money goes, and you know, so you either have to have a big star or you know a thousand pieces of set scenery and all these things coming right. together but you know yes the simple solution is often a ve- very yes. very effective one if you put all the weight on if you have a text and that can support it and actors who can pull it off that right. is that is all we go to the theater for really everything else right. is is trappings but outside of seeing shows like Mamma Mia where you are sort of encouraged to well, that's what you're going the for aisles, right, right. Yeah. I have not seen a show where the audience was so viscerally engaged and with it and there was sort of um, as once on this island, no, as, or as color as purple, as color purple, mm-hmm. and I remember that from once on this island too. Um, but 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 there was an awareness both from an audience perspective and an actor perspective that yeah, we're here to see this great show. We're going to celebrate this together. Mm-hmm. But it was it was incredible. It was really incredible. Oh, and, that's and, great. And I had that same feeling from once on this island. I remember back back in the day. Yeah, that's the way I felt when we saw um, Fun Home. On Broadway, and it was that same. I mean, it's a it's circle and square. It's a mm-hmm. small little space. Mm-hmm. There were and there were things coming up and down, down out of the floor and things. But there were it was a door frame. You know, yeah. it was a very basic set, and there's only six, you know, seven characters, and the audience was in it a thousand percent. Nobody was on their phones for right. that that thing. Um, and is it possible it, that if we stop overproducing shows, ticket prices can go down and more just people a tiny can enjoy bit. theater? That would be lovely. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they can be more accessible to the regional theater markets. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, and travel around. Mm-hmm. People, yeah, because that, that would be – is it daunting – you can answer this question. Is it daunting as, a, as a, 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 a regional theater producer to look at a show that has – that is praised for its huge set and go, oh, we I can't do that, do that yet? Well, I tell you, uh, this is probably a long um, response to that question. Well, we got but, time. Uh, but I, <laughs> I tell you, one of the uh, this is not this is a bad way to say it, but the one of the hardest parts about my job and the least enjoyable parts about my job, oddly, is the thing that people think is the most fun, which is picking a season. Mm. Picking a season is the pits. It's awful. I hate it. One, because I can't just pick a season because I like this playwright and I like that play. I have so many other masters to answer to. Is it going to sell? Can we produce it? Do we have the artists in town? Am I going to attract press? Uh, All these kind of things that go into picking a season that are not about necessarily the art. Um, And so when I'm reading a script that when you read it or you know about what people imagine of it and I go, I can't do that in my space. Mm Yeah, it's daunting. It's really daunting. And people have, lots of people have expectations. And because theater is sort of accessible, 
and it's now on TV, people can kind of have their own opinion about how it should be produced. So do you, it, it sounds like you would use the scope of a previous production, if it's something you're familiar with, the way people use kind of job applicants, where it's just like, we've got a, I've got a pile of 50 applicants for one position. So I'm looking for reasons to slide them off my desk. Exactly. And so if a show is famous for having a huge production, you go, well, no, that's, we'll just put that to the side. Then. Well, because you don't, because a lot of people want to come see how you pull it off. Right. I mean, yes, because it, it well, should be right. said, it's not just you who's read that it has a huge production. Right. It's the theater going community right. who's read about the set and the glory of the set. And you just go, well, we'll just put that over right. And what's interesting for children's theater is that it's so popular right now. And there's probably some controversy to me calling certain shows children's theater, but I base it on wh- who's coming to see it. Mm-hmm. And so when I think of things like Wicked and Lion King and Matilda and mm-hmm. Annie, those are children's shows to mm-hmm. me. That's children's theater. Uh, the audiences that see those shows are the same audiences that see my shows. Right. Those audiences have a huge expectation for what the quality of the show is going to be. If you see Lion King on Broadway and you see children's theater in your local neighborhood, right. what is your expectation? And so, yeah. Th- th- and what are the things that make it, I mean, like you said, Annie, what are the things that make it Annie? You're going to have to have a little girl. You're going to have to have a dog. She's going to have to wear the it's wig. You're going to have to have a bald. Like, there's certain trappings right. people expect. And if right. one of them is grandiose, like in The Lion King. Yep grandiose puppeteering sets. You either better do it or have a concept that goes so far against that. Yep. People go, oh, I see what you're doing there. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And I do think that we've had success at Adventure Theater um, with picking shows that people are like, what? Mm-hmm. And then pulling them off really, really well. If you can self-imposed or otherwise put these restrictions upon yourself, you can generally come up with some really creative storytelling. Because this show, I mean, Once on this Island that we're talking about, there are moments of tremendous magical realism mm-hmm. in it, and to be realized in this very intimate, minimalist way, I, I think that's one of the things that makes the structure so intelligent, is that it allows for your your expectation is if you're seeing people tell the story on stage, that they're telling it, they're making it up as they're going, or at least they're right. playing it, so <laughs> they're only dealing with what they have around them, sticks, branches, whatever it right. may be. Yeah, right. So everything's going to be a little bit more representative than... Yeah, and also because it's so conceptual, you can you can sort of reconceive it in many different ways. It doesn't. I mean, even the the Broadway show and the touring had a, a glitz factor to it, mm-hmm. um, not an overproduced, but a glitz or polish. Factor. Would you yeah. say? Yeah. Well, no, there was some sparkle and stuff to it. Oh, I, I mean, see. There were okay. moments of like, of, um, I, I for some reason I have a real memory of the umbrellas they use in the rain sequence having some glitz to it, but they weren't like overproduced umbrellas. They were like an umbrella that someone hot glued some right. rhinestones to. <laughs> and I think that's great. But, I, but you know, how many productions of Watson's Island I've seen? Um, there, there are tons, and everyone has a, a way into it um, that works for whatever that person wants to, whatever that director wants to do, or that company wants to do. And I think that's why, again, it has such great staying power, because it's a great play with great music and great parts and a great timeless story. Uh, The other interesting thing I like about this show is I think it was the first show where, uh, and I have a whole thing about um, race, but it was the first show where it wasn't black against white race. It wasn't about it wasn't about the, the traditional travesties of race that we know of in America. It was about light-skinned black people against mm-hmm. dark-skinned black, black people, which was something I'd never sort of I mean, I knew it existed in the black community, but I didn't. I never seen it in a musical. Yeah, and it takes place. I mean, the show takes place in. I mean, they they say it's the jewel of the Antilles, but it's yeah. Haiti. I mean, yeah. it is it is Haiti. Yeah. And I actually am shockingly up to date on at least the history of Haiti because there's a wonderful podcast I listen to called Revolutions, where we talk. They just give history of revolutions, mm-hmm. and we just finished the Haitian Revolution. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that is a huge thing in Haiti between there's the the sort of the the what they refer to as there were the blacks the coloreds, the mixed race people, and mm-hmm. the whites. And there were all these different classes. And it was they had a whole pamphlet oh, yeah. about what all those different shades mean and, like, all those awful terms you hear, like, you know, like oh, Octoroon yeah. and things. They we all had, had classifications. We had that in America. Mm-hmm. That, um, at one point, um, New Orleans was, was black-owned, mm-hmm. and the mayor of New Orleans was considered um, Place Blanc, which is right. legally passing as Passing right. as white. As white, yeah. So, yeah, that history is in, in America, too. But, but it, in America, we ex- I think we expect it because we have this horrible racial 
past, but you're saying like in a, in a, in a, in a, a culture like Haiti, which in, you know, for, as a white kid from the suburbs of Wilmington, you, Delaware, you just sort of go, oh, that, that's, you know, they're all black. So I'm sure there's no racial problems at all. Right. But however, there are tremendous racial problems, right. just like there are everywhere. Right. Yeah. And I think that I have, um, I, I know that I know now in my life as a 43 year old, um, having been in theater for a long time, I am exhausted by plays about race, mm. about the travesties of race, I should say. I should clarify okay. about the travesty. I just think I've seen all of them. <laughs> okay. I've seen all the plays about, about it. And, and, and not that those don't have a place in our history, but I'd like to see the balance shift. I love to see people writing plays about the contributions of culture. Mm. The things that are great about what we do. And race can sort of be a given circumstance, but in most instances, race is a major plot point. And it's always about the travesties of race. And, you know, I'm also aware that often when, when minorities are put on stage, the, the whole play becomes about the thing that makes that minority a minority. Mm-hmm. And I just think there are other stories mm-hmm. out there, and I would love to see some of those stories happen. Yeah. Do you know? I do. I do know, though it's obviously much more personal for you than it is for me. It is, and, yeah. and, and and the one place where I can sort of make a difference is in my own theater. We have commissioned um, several plays that are about cultural experiences that are not about race. One of our most successful was Bob Marley's Three Little Birds. Mm-hmm. Right. Clearly about black culture, but there was nothing in that play about, about race, mm-hmm. about the travesties of race. It was all about the contributions of race. We even oh. do the history of Jamaica where we talked about the fact that Jamaica is it was is a sort of a mixed culture island anyway. There were Indians, there were Chinese people that mm-hmm. came, there was the Spanish, there was the British, and they all sort of like contributed to what we know of as Jamaica today. And it wasn't a, a bad thing. Mm-hmm. I just think we live in the bad too much. Yeah, there is there is not enough, I will say. I've never heard it articulated that way before, but it, it is that the lack of the, the good parts of being a melting pot, the things that if you can truly transcend all the problems, which certainly do exist and cannot be ignored, but if you the, the amazing things that can happen in the combinations of cultures when they right, mix right. And, and twist and and influence each other, and and I uh, you know as a black artistic director, I get I get asked to be on panels to discuss diversity all the time, all the time, at least one, once a month, because <laughs> um, I know everything about diversity. Right, of just course. Just because I'm black. Right. Um, no, I appreciate that. <laughs> I really do appreciate the opportunity because I think that, that one, I, I may have a unique um, spin on on it, um, and I think it's, I'm happy to, to be able to, to have a voice in those conversations. It's, it's a conversation, I have to say, I have become, I have attempted to be, I should say, less afraid to ask stupid questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, lately, I went to a, a pan- one of these panel discussions here at AU um, that was a panel on race in the media. And it was there was a it was the debut also of uh, Kayleen Sinette Jennings, I'm sure you, you know, made a film with one another professor that was a, a monologue of hers about race, which is phenomenal. But then there was a panel of, you know, there's two white, two white female professors and then two uh, black male professors who all gave little 10-minute talks and then there was going to be a discussion. And the last person to speak was uh, Professor John Watson uh, in our journalism program. And he lit my world on fire because he got up there and he said, I almost didn't come tonight because I was really afraid that this was just going to be a bunch of like-minded liberals singing Kumbaya. Oh, wow. (laughs) And I just sort of went, oh, tell me. This man is going to tell me the truth. Sure. And he, he's, and I've had several follow-up, I went to see him in his office and I've had several follow-up conversations. His basic premise was, we have to stop being afraid to be called racist. Mm-hmm. Because one of the reasons I think, and I, I absolutely believe this, one of the reasons that white people don't ask more questions is because they're afraid of being labeled a racist. Because once you label the racist, you're done. Right, right, that's you're it. Done. You're out you're of done. the conversation. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's also why I think you hear a lot of people fervently stating, I'm not a racist, while at the same time saying, but oh, we should build a wall in Mexico. Like they're, they're, That's why they're able to draw that line, because if, if they're declared a racist, they're, right, they're they finished. Right, exactly. And he <laughs> talked about how you have to, we have to stop calling people racist to ask these questions because it's only through asking questions and we ask that this sort of, that the healing will ever begin, the cultural understanding right. will ever, will ever begin. And it's, you know, I, I am a believer that 
it's the playwright's job to ask questions, not necessarily to answer them. So that really got me peaked in a really interesting way. Um, well, I even think we use the word diversity wrong. Oh, okay. I think that I, I think when we diversify, what we do is do the black show for black people mm-hmm. and the Asian show for Asian people, and that's not diversity. That is actually segregation. Right. <laughs> what we really want. Well, and, the season is diverse, if you, but the right, actual shows right. themselves are not. Yeah. But what you want is to have many minds and cultures in the room together. That's diversity. But also, you can get all the minds in the room, but if not everybody's willing to, if some, if people aren't willing to be dumb and to be to ask those questions that need to be, because if everybody's as as Professor John uh, Watson said. If they're not just standing around, if we're all just standing around smiling and singing, then nothing is accomplished at right. all. It's just right. we all go out of there just as ignorant as we came in. Right. And it's it's an, it's a hard thing to do because you have to find a way to, to get people that haven't been to your theater there. But I actually think diversity is good for business. I think when you start diversifying your programs, you open yourself up to a whole group of people mm-hmm. that may never have come before. And hopefully you can continue to engage them so that they can add to your your patron base or whatever. And I, I've been reading so many articles that, that have been saying that that where this country is going, if you are not, if you are not diversifying your programs and programs and including people of other cultures in your programs, you're gonna have a hard time being in business soon. Yeah. A really hard time. I mean we still use words like tolerance when we talk about race. I mean, as, as a, there's a whole museum of it in LA. I don't know if you've oh my God, it's a black gay man. I don't know if I want to be considered I don't know. It's. I think you tolerate hot water, or you tolerate <laughs> the bad taste of like food. You tolerate you, your grandmother's stories that never end, right? right but you, you don't, right? Yeah. You, know, you know what I mean. I, so, I your tolerate does really mean put up with. It doesn't with. mean accept, embrace, integ- and close, in- integrate. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's it a, means it's the wrong word. It's the thing you put up with to get to the thing you really want to do. Right. Which, yeah, right, that's right, true. Right, I didn't right, think right, about that. Right. Right. <laughs> that <laughs> is weird. the wrong word. That's it's the wrong word. Well, it's we'll have to word. tear down the museum. The other thing I, was tell, I tell people on these panels is that I have this weird utopia. Um, and we're sort of getting way off track. No, traffic that's fine. I have this weird idea of a utopia where we have flipped race to becoming something great where we become so obsessed with each other's cultures. Mm -hmm. We maintain our own identity. I don't want to assimilate and become one culture. I want to have different cultures because I'm obsessed with other people's cultures. Mm -hmm. Like I want to try your food. I want to try your traditions. I want to do your dances. I want to maintain my own identity, but I want to participate in the things that you do and embrace. And so we as an American people or even a world's people just become obsessed with each other's cultures so that we can become just better. <laughs> so the, 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 the question I would have for that, I think you're right, but the question that, that comes to my mind first for that is, is this issue currently popular of cultural appropriation and this concept of one group stealing another group's culture for the purposes of profit, I guess would be the... The that's sense. a loaded question because that's been happening. Well, it's not for really a question. And yes, and absolutely. Yeah, and that's why I didn't phrase it as a question. <laughs> yeah. I just, I, yeah. I, it's just one of those. It's something that gets brought up a lot, and about what does it mean to be authentically black or Latino or even Irish or Italian? Like, what does that really mean? And it's really interesting to me now because uh, my uh, my parents and a lot of my mother's friends are going through the, all the genealogical research and they're getting those DNA you sent you swab yourself and send it sure, in through right. the mail and people who thought that they were dyed in the wool Italian from way back are finding out that they're actually 78% English you know right. or Scandinavian right. or something right. and it's screwing people up in a serious way because they built their identity so much on being one thing and all the things they thought that was and it's actually no you're you're not you're this other thing, but you're still you. Like, right. it, does right. it, so, yeah, it doesn't matter. Well, my, my utopia is extremely flawed, although we are seeing an What's exam- a utopia? That's Right, that's, although we are seeing an example of it right now because one of the examples I use is that rich white ladies will enjoy hip-hop concerts mm-hmm. and Hello Hamilton. Right. Wealth, my wealthiest white friends are like, they know every single word of Hamilton. But would those wealthy white friends go to a hip-hop show? Um, Because the safety of the Richard Rogers Theater from a cultural standpoint allows them, and also, I mean, there's a cost barrier there, but allows them to go to the show and it's still safely 
up there. In my utopia, sure. if we do become obsessed with each other's cultures, then they would go. Well, right. That is, yeah. And vice versa. Yeah. I think that they would enjoy it. I'm not mm-hmm. saying they would. It, it's the question of would, would you make the step to go? And, you know, then what would the other people there think of, of you if being we, there? If we, yeah. if we all flip race, right. then it could it could be possible. Yeah. And maybe Lin-Manuel has actually started a whole movement. Maybe he's well, getting that is closer the, to, to utopia. That is the, the sort of – I will say in the last two years, having these two shows, Fun Home and Hamilton, open back-to-back at the public, which is just incredible, and then transfer to Broadway and – about with people about culture because of those two shows. Just theater, as you say, you know, white people who I associate with um, and are in my family. The the funniest one I had was with uh, a relative of mine having seen the Fun Home song uh, Ring of Keys on the Tony Awards mm-hmm. and was just concerned about that young woman being in a show about lesbians and what must she think and how is this affecting her future. And this was, you know, I let this relative have this long speech. And I just said, well, is there anything wrong with being gay? And they said, no. I said, well, if there's nothing wrong with it, then there's nothing wrong with it. Right. (laughs) Like, what does that mean? That means that everything's fine. And they kind of went, oh, I guess. And I'm not saying they, like, it was fixed that day. But they, uh, that, that show had given them something else. It started a conversation that then I was able to give them something else to think about and send them on their way. And I yeah, I followed up. But I, I hope that it you well, know yeah. came and also, from that right place. Right. And also yeah. the popularity of being gay and lesbian and trans and a drag queen is is so there, which is fabulous. <laughs> it's fabulous. You know, we, we really do run the world, we gays. <laughs> we told you all that liking Beyonce was okay. That's we, true. We discovered her. That's true. We did. We yeah, really yeah. Did. Okay. <laughs> That's true. Talking, though, about, about racial appropriation and cultural appropriation, if you were producing this show, how attentive would you feel you needed to be to the dark skin, light skin conflict? Because if we're, we're talking about cultural appropriation, blending cultures. In theater, that often comes off in these conversations about race-blind casting. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, but in a show like this that deals with, I mean, race and class, that which go hand-in-hand in, hand in this show, and they go hand-in-hand hand at, at the period of this that Haitian culture that this takes place in. You can't have one without the other. Um, how important would you feel it is as a director to cast it along the racially prescribed lines? It's a tricky question because yeah. they're all storytellers. Mm-hmm. And so ideally you can cast however you want to cast because they're storytellers. Okay. And it's, all, and it's, it, it's so explicit in the script that they can get away. In fact, when I saw the tour, if I remember, the girl who played Timun was not dark-skinned. She was medium-skinned. Complexion. Okay. Um, <clears throat> but you bought it because they were all storytellers. Mm-hmm. But then that talk that brings up like like this Zoe um, Saldana being cast yes. as yeah. Nina Simone. As Nina Simone. That brings right. up that story too. And and some people found it really inappropriate. I, for one, thought she's an actress. She wants to do this role. Why not? Yeah. Why do, I, I don't want to be I don't want to be the person saying you can't do that role. You can't do this part. You can't mm-hmm. make this art because you're not this shade of right. complexion. And I think the mistake was they should have just let her do it not what? in not darkening her skin. That, that is the mistake. Yes, right, you're absolutely right, right. right. What is your favorite song in Once on this Island? Oh, Waiting for Life. Oh, God's oh, God's are you there? What can I do to get you to look down and give in? Oh, God's oh, God's hear my prayer. I'm here in the field with my feet on the ground and my feet in the air. Life to begin. Yeah. When I had my little exercise jam, when I exercised, that was like <laughs> that was like the jam. I would get on that. And I'd be like, I would sing it and go for it. And and I Lashans voice on that song just sort mm-hmm. of just oh like yeah. Does well, her voice is yeah. I mean, just absolutely. It's also a really good song when you're teaching musical theater song interpretation too. Because oh, there's okay. Great, there's great images. There's great. Um, it really requires the actress to be super specific. Um, would great... you would you consider that her I want song for yeah. that? Okay. Yeah. Oh yeah. All right. Clearly. Yeah. Yeah. That is an expression I'm definitely trying to grab onto a little bit as a music theater I want song. I'm trying to. Well, I, and this is the other thing why I think some of the contemporary musicals don't quite quite work because I think that and I don't know if I mean I think the, the musical that as far as the form of musical theater and and how it's written. And how it functions. I think the best example is She Loves Me. 
I think the way the songs come out, the way they relate to the characters, the structure of the songs, how they operate in the full story is is sheer perfection. I'll tell you, Buck and Harnick do that almost, uh, maybe not better than anybody, but they don't really get enough credit for how well-crafted. They've written, I don't know, eight, mm-hmm. six, six to eight musicals, and only they're only famous really for two of them, for right. Fiddler on the Roof and right. She Loves Me, which are right. both on Broadway right now. Right, yeah. But, I mean, they won a Pulitzer for Fiorello, which, take it or leave it, structurally is a wonderful piece of theater. And I'm a big fan of The Apple Tree, um, even though three-act musicals are probably a terrible <laughs> right. idea. But I love that show. And that is another show where the, the songs organically emerge mm-hmm. from the situation in a flawless way. And and they do they do that sort of, I guess, what I call the if I loved you thing, where songs come up and down and the scene goes and then the song comes back in and it flows around. And, yeah, they just... They're yeah, really they're a lot better than they get credit for, and I'm glad Sheldon Harnick's getting a special, or at this point, will have gotten it. a special Tony this it. year. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting because I've done a lot of studying on Lehman Ingle and the BMI workshop and the ASCAP workshops and and all that sort of stuff on how to write musicals, um, and uh, and so the when I do the musical theater song interpretation classes, the the first lecture is is what are the, how the songs function, mm. and really every song ever written. Had is three is one of three different songs. It's either um, emotive, narrative, or descriptive. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they can they blend. blur the lines, and, right. and rarely you have all three. But every single song falls in that main form. And then you have a whole in musical theater. You have a whole bunch of other song forms. You have like the one, I want song, or the comedy song, or the charm song, the eleven o'clock, o'clock song, number, right? Yeah. Or the ensemble number, and 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 the the love song, or, or the oblique love song. Mm-hmm. Um, and all those have different functions, um, and so you're right. That's that's a clear I want. Waiting for life is a clear I want song. Yeah. And as we to tie it back to Hamilton again, we've been talking about Lin. I heard him say Lin Manuel Miranda say on 60 Minutes that he believes all great hip hop songs are really good music theater I want songs because that's what they. He also I got to say I think I might have said this on the show before that when. I first heard that cast album. I was so jealous because I went, oh, this is perfect. In hip-hop, it is Derigor to say your own name a thousand times. Like, that's something that the performers do. So character introductions suddenly become a cinch because you're, oh, right. yeah. <laughs> your character can say their own name to Alexander the audience. Hamilton. Because they're Hamilton. Well, and also the first one, the Lafayette, and yeah. uh, then they all come out and say their name. And you're just, of course, you're allowed to. The yeah. form allows you to do that. Right. And I just thought, oh, that's... Because as a writer... Introducing character names is just <laughs> the hard, for me the hardest thing in the world. Without having somebody going, Bob, you've been director of this office for forty two years now. Right, you know, right to right. get it, which is often why. And I don't know if this is a failing or not, but like when I do play in a day for you, I don't do it. I don't have the characters say their names. They're just they have a relationship that we understand with each other, and then we go. And as long as that's clear. Because in conversation, I don't say like I haven't said your name since I introduced you, and you right, haven't yes. said mine. Right. We don't when you talk to people. That's no, not. We do that in playwriting all, all the time. All the time. All you do the time. There's a great supercut on YouTube somewhere uh, in Titanic. Every time they say Jack and Rose say each other's name to each other, and it's three minutes long <laughs> in a three-hour movie, and it that's just happens. Funny. And some of them are calling each other's names across a room, right? But a lot of it isn't. A lot of it is that's funny. Now ending I'm, a sentence with I'm going to go back and look the at name. Check it out. Written. It is just, it's a, that is so. I mean, we talked a little bit in, in this conversation about the sort of rules of writing, and and uh, you were saying that you know that there are these rules for where songs go, and and you had a a teacher who who you said I think before we started recording, you had a writing teacher who said they don't like descriptives for lines. They want the line to be structured well, in a certain way. This teacher did not like. This teacher would force me to take the choice away from the actor Mm -hmm. that I have to imagine my plays being read by sometimes actors that don't have a lot of craft and if you wanted to be successful sounding you have to make sure that line is only interpreted one way but without using those little parentheticals as we said that say sarcastic or angry happy like just the line dictates the inflection or at least the mood exactly and I think that, that that takes a lot of intentional writing and listening and being aware and and you know 
and when you hear the play, if the interpretation is not what you intended, then that could be a flaw of the line. Mm-hmm. And so maybe you go back and rewrite it so that you can get the exact intention that you want out of there. Yeah. Um, and I and so so I work very hard to do that. Yeah, there are all those things that the audience needs to know that I think the reason you see all this clunky exposition is because often the writer just wants to write that and get past it so you can get onto the what the show or the scene or the play or the movie is about. Like We just need to get this information out and then do it. Because in screenwriting, we learned a lot about how don't use titles to express information and don't use voiceover uh, to express information and don't use montage to express information. Right. And, and probably narrative text, too. Yeah, exactly. All, don't use those things. Show, not tell. I mean, that's yeah. the sort of shorthand for all of this. And it's not to say that like, there are some great movies that have voiceover and use it really well. Fight Club is the one that always mm-hmm. comes to mind. There are great movies with montages. Fight Club, again, comes to mind. But there are – these are often we, – we teach students not to do these things because they are crutches. Yeah. And if you can learn to walk without the crutch, then right. you know, oh, but I, when I need the crutch or when the crutch is it, appropriate, you, you know how work. to use it well. You yes. know how to utilize it I perfectly. Agree. I agree. Yeah. Because this show does have a lot of ex- straight exposition to straight the audience. Exposition. Straight Yeah. Because the character, so is the character of is it Little Timon? Little Timon. She yeah. played by the little girl who they're yeah. telling a story to. Okay. Yep. Um, so the way the the way the play is structured is that we meet a, a sort of village of people that are sitting around a fire or wherever because there's a huge storm coming and uh, it's a very scary storm and the little girl starts crying. And so to soothe the little girl, who doesn't really have a name, they call her Little Two Moon because that's the role she plays mm-hmm. in the story that they're telling. But none of the characters really have a name. Right. They're all just sort of villagers and story villagers uh, initially. One of the characters starts telling the story about Two Moon, and that's how they launch into the into the into the story. Right. And so. What what I like about Once in This Island is that Little to Moon, the, the the little girl in the story plays Little to Moon, and then occasionally she's watching the story of Little to Moon happen. So sometimes the storytellers go back to that little girl, mm-hmm. and you re- you remember that there's there's a storm happening, and they're soothing this girl. So it's it's sort of a concept. It's a play within a play within a play mm-hmm. in many ways, um, and I think it's just it was done so well. It was done so very well. Mm-hmm. It's simple. I mean, it is a simple structure and a simple story told beautifully. I mean, as we, we've said with the the music and lyrics and, and book, which is something that keeps coming mm-hmm. up again and again. The more I talk to people, simplicity seems to be something that gets through to people in I these formative so. years and these very basic. I think so. And I. Um, whether it be story or emotion, I mean, we've talked about Les Mis twice on this podcast yeah. already. And that is, I mean, while the, the story itself is maybe a little complicated and would take me probably five to ten minutes to explain, the emotional simplicity of that show resonates with people to me in a very – those people feel passionately and you clearly understand which direction they're feeling and they clash in very interesting ways, which lets right. the audience have that kind of simple reaction. It's funny because I do like complicated plots though. But uh, Yeah, oh, absolutely. I like complicated, plot, complica- complicated plots that all meet – ahead at the same time. But I would say that, I would conjecture at any rate, that the thing that at least lets you connect with that complicated plot and follow it is that the characters then are simple. Or right. so, something simple is going on to let to grab you and then take you on this this journey. I mean, we just, my wife and I saw um, a couple months ago now, uh, Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, which has a very complicated story, mainly because of the point of view that it's told from. Right. But it, the, but it is a story about a boy trying to solve a mystery. Yep. That's the whole thing. Yep. And you can and it follows that structure very logically. He investigates things. He finds clues. The clues lead to the next thing he discovers. And so you can follow it. That simplicity allows you just to follow it and also take in all the complicated stuff they talk about, all the math stuff and, right, and right. all the complicated world in which right, that show right. takes place. Yeah. You know, it's one reason why I really love children's theater. Mm. Um, and and I think children's theater is very, very hard. And I would really love for someone, some university, some MFA program somewhere, to really investigate whether or not children's theater is a style of acting. Like mm. like musical theater, mm-hmm. like classical, like Chekhov, it requires additional skills, a different additional techniques to tell those stories. I, I sort of believe that is th- the case because often 
if you're in a children's show, you have an hour, you're playing five different characters and three of them are animals. And so right. there's a different sort of style to doing that kind of thing. When you can't mix them up because kids will... And you can't mix them no, up. No, you're right. not doing you the gotta, dog, you're I mean, doing the, the horse. Anyone who's tried to tell a child a story and do different voices mm-hmm. has heard the statement, that's the same voice as the other person. Change, you know, that's not... The kids are listening. <laughs> we get a bit of a bum rap in the sort of the bigger theater community that it's easy or it's not real. Theater, well, there's this new I mean, really, this nonsense. The Washington Post not going to review yeah, children's I, theater anymore, yeah, and it's it's, it's ridiculous and yeah. short sighted of them, and it makes me sad that they would sort of eliminate two of their largest theaters in this community. Yeah, if you look at any rubric that makes theaters successful, awards or number of patrons or number of artists or pre or press worthy or national things. Our two of our children's theaters are among the top ten or twelve in this yeah. city, and so it's short-sighted. But I also think amongst some artists in this community, they, they don't think of children's theater as legitimate theater, and I think it's harder to do yeah. to tell a really vivid story in an hour that's typically fast, and you're playing several different characters, or you're a bird, um, <laughs> or you have an audience who responds not when the scene is over. Uh, but they respond when they want to respond, and mm-hmm. whatever, with, however they want to respond. That takes a bunch of. That takes a lot of concentration. Yeah. It, it, anyone who's tried to watch kids' entertainment with their children and really watch it, not yeah. sit on your phone and and while your kid watches TV yeah. and, and zone out, but really watch, will have it, it just you know go on Netflix. You will have definite opinions about the difference between, you know, Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood and Caillou. Right, like there is a. There is a right. in a tremendous difference in the care to which one of those shows is put together. It's Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood. That's an amazing. <laughs> um, it's an amazing way that Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood strives to make every moment important mm-hmm. and clear, and in a way that the, you can tell the creators of Caillou were like, and thirty minutes, right. Right. And we're done. We've right. got a cute voice, cute kid, but they don't even finish drawing the whole scene. Like right. it's just so late. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. the kid doesn't have hair. It's a terrible right. show. But even but even like in the design aspects, it requires so much creativity. I mean, mm-hmm. I was talking with this about to this about this with Deb Savigny, who did um, the clothes for Emperor's Nightingale that we recently did. And uh, and she was like, listen, I created a tiger and a panda and a bird and then real people. You know, it, it there's, there's just so much more. So, so anyway, we get a bit of a bum, bum rap that it's not legitimate and it's actually harder. Because I, well, I, yeah, I think one of the reasons you get a bum rap is because the audience gets a bum rap. Because right. the kids get the, the bum rap of being like, whatever, they'll just sit through any nonsense. But it isn't. Maybe they'll sit through it, but they won't want to go see it again. Like, they won't want to go back to... Right. And I would venture to say that 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 some of what we do in children's theater is having a major effect on what's happening in commercial theater and regional theater. Mm-hmm. I mean, you look at, like, that last revival of P- Pippin. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's based on a circus, which is children's entertainment. And then there's a whole that extraordinary scene where they did the whole farm sequence and the actors on their hands and knees acting like farm animals. That's children's theater. Right. I'm sorry. So yeah. we're, we're so we're having a major. But the thing I one of the things I really love about children's theater is that, you know, in the big boy world, the issues that we put in plays are big, trivial, world problems. But in the children's world, you can write a whole play about a kid learning how to tie their shoe. You just have to dramatize it in a way that makes it really important. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of my favorite examples is um, a play called Lily's Purple Plastic Purse based on a really important um, – based on a really um, fun children's book. But Lily um, – there are things happening. She, her parents are about to have a new baby and she's sort of a – precocious little girl who likes a lot of attention. But um, when the baby comes, she wasn't expecting the attention to go to the baby. And mm-hmm. so she starts acting out in a way because she just tries to get attention. And her grandmother notices is, notices that she's acting out and takes her to, to go shopping to buy a purple plastic purse. And she puts three coins in the purse. And so Lily wants everyone to pay attention to this purple plastic purse that has three coins in it. And she starts acting out at school because no one's paying attention, which is, again, a small little bit of trivia for us as adults but I remember having certain things in my life that I wanted to show everyone Mm -hmm. and no one cared and it was devastating to me as a kid and so I think that's why I love children's theater because you can write big epic stories about tiny Tiny small issues and Garfield I mean the whole story was about him wanting this lavish birthday right and he thought everyone forgot which is devastating right to a kid kid. absolutely and so and it became a major dramatic it was the dramatic through line for the piece right yeah so that's why I love it yeah 
It's it's well, you do great work. I'm and I'm happy to ah, do you're work. Well, that's that. Well, you know, you keep hmm. hiring me, so I keep. <laughs> I, I'm not going to insult you as long as you're not. There's, there's more to come. So, um, what do you guys have coming up uh, in the near future? I can tell you what the season is. Sure. The first show that we're opening with is um, Nuffle Bunny, which is based okay. on a Mo Willems book, mm-hmm. which I'm super excited about. It was um, commissioned and premiered at the Kennedy Center. Um, Mo Willems wrote for um, uh, Sesame Street. Okay. Um, so I'm super super excited about that. Knows what then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a pro, yeah. yeah. And Nick Oldcott is directing that. And then our holiday show is a two-person version of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Oh, my gosh. Starring Chris Nolfo, which I'm super excited about. Okay. And directed by Serge Seiden. Oh, wow. Come see how we pull off a two-person, 45-minute um, version of The Lion, of the, Lion the, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jeez. And then we're doing the- Even war- numbers of characters terrify me. I know, I know, I know. Another, it's so funny because I thing. actually was talking to someone about a three-person, uh, a two-person Alice in Wonderland where the two, and we haven't written this yet, but this was the idea where the two- Actors get to flip roles each night. I thought it was oh, fun. Wow. But the director that I wanted to do this said, two people, you got to add a third person. Yeah, so there's conflict. Three. But anyway. Yeah, anyway um, sorry. And, then, uh, and then our um, winter show, I'm super excited about. It's our, uh, we do a lot, a lot of world premieres at Adventure, but this uh, we're only doing one next, next season. Uh, this is a co commission with First Stage in Milwaukee. We're doing the world premiere of Ella Enchanted. Written by our very own Karen uh, Karen um, Zacharias and Debbie Wicks All right. Um, that book had a mo- that there was a book and there was a movie. So right. super with Anne Hathaway. Yeah. yeah, and then we're doing uh, a really fun uh, adaptation of Aladdin, which I'm super excited. Oh, okay. About. Yeah, Roberta Gaspari. Mary Hall Surface is directing Ella Enchanted. Roberta Gaspari is directing Aladdin, and then the summer show, directed by Colin Hubdy, will be a. a, a, a uh, adaptation of Junie B. Jones is not a crook. Uh, and so anyone that has little girls in their life will will yeah. enjoy Love Junie B. Jones. Yeah, yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. She's polarizing, but... Uh, yeah, but <laughs> she's, she's polarizing. great. I don't... The, yeah, she doesn't fun. need to be pulled. Yeah, I'm super excited no, about the season. I think that's great. And you can um, Adventure Theaters on social media at yep. Adventure... Uh, adventure Theater MTC. Yep. Okay, great. And you just hired a new... Managing what? director. Managing director. That yes, is, yeah. yes. Super excited. Lauren uh, Juanita Hines. She's fantastic. She has a lot of experience in um, the arts, uh, dance, and opera. Um, but she's one of the smartest people I know. Ooh, okay. Um, and she's very nurturing, but at the same time demanding and wonderful. And I'm excited about sort of growing adventure theater with her. It's a it's a really great partnership. That's great. Yeah, I just she keeps I heard me an, honest and she challenges me and we have fun. I heard an interview with her on Aaron Teachman's podcast, uh, Exit oh, Stage Door, which oh, is good. which oh, I've good. been on, and that's oh, a good. great yeah, podcast. You're going to hear she great, sounds... thing, great things about her. Yeah, I'm also super excited because she's uh, Mexican. Oh, okay. So uh, maybe Another one point of the of view. few theaters in the country that has two leadership that are uh, minorities. All right. Yeah. Corrupting the youth of America. I know. That's what we do all the time. I guess it depends on who becomes president. Right. The original cast was recorded at the Media Production Center at American University. Special thanks to Jeffrey Madison, Tom Fish, Imani Mular, and the tireless staff of students who run the front desk. Follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook at Original Cast Pod. You can follow me, Patrick Flynn, on Twitter at Unknown Penguin. You can email us at OriginalCastPod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Subscribe to the original cast on iTunes, and while you're there, please give us a comment and a rating so other people can find the show. My thanks to Michael J. Bobbitt for coming down and talking to me today. I'm Patrick Flynn, and I can't. I have rehearsal. Ah!